Job chapter 28. The last two sermons that we've had in the book of Job have dealt with Job's final answer to the final speech of his friends. Apparently, after that speech, Job's friends have nothing else to say. It is Zophar's turn to speak, but he does not speak. And I pointed out several weeks ago that from chapters 26 to 31, which is all Job speaking, there seem to be times when Job pauses as much as to say, Okay, answer me. And no one answers. And so he continues speaking. His friends have nothing more to say. They have failed to comfort him. They have failed to convince him that all that has happened to him is his fault. And so now it is his turn. Job has the stage to himself. In this chapter, we find, I think, a dramatic change of tempo and of tone. For almost 30 chapters now, we have been bombarded with material about Job's anguish, along with impassioned explanations for that anguish. On the one side, Job's friends claim that it is his fault and his fault alone, that he is he is receiving what he deserves for some wickedness that he has committed. And they say some pretty horrible things about their friend. On the other side, Job desperately, in the midst of his suffering, protests his innocence and questions God as to why all of this is happening. We have listened now for a number of weeks, even months, as they have talked past each other, as they have pointed the finger at each other, as they have become more and more frustrated at one another, the friends seeking to justify God, Job seeking to justify himself. And their, the rhetoric has, has become harsher and harsher. Even Job has become in, more intemperate in his responses. And his friends don't listen to him. They talk past him. And perhaps now the time has come for a break. For some objective reflection. Perhaps we need to stand back from the debate so that we can see things more clearly, so that we can think more clearly. I think this is what chapter 28 provides for us. It has been called a hymn to wisdom. It provides a break between Job's last response to the last speech and then what we will see, the Lord willing, beginning next week, what has been called Job's last stand. It is his final impassioned statement about the fact that he is innocent and these things should not have happened to him. After Job is finished in chapter 31, a new person is introduced into the dialogue. Someone named Elihu, who will speak for five or six chapters, who will also speak about wisdom as Job does in this particular chapter. Just some background. In the Old Testament, in the wisdom tradition, there appear to be three kinds of wisdom or three types of wisdom. Okay? The first we would call proverbial wisdom, which we've been hearing as we've had the reading through the Old Testament now that we're in the book of Proverbs. These are common sense statements about life and behavior that are passed on from parent to child, from teacher to student. You know, someone who has lived before us, who has experienced certain things, or maybe they heard it from their parents, and now when a person reaches a certain age, this information is passed on to them. As I said, this is what we find in the book of Proverbs. 
The second type of wisdom is the wisdom of intellectual exploration, the searching for answers in the, in the midst of the riddle of life. This is what we find in the book of Ecclesiastes as the teacher tries to make sense of it all and goes on an intellectual odyssey to try to figure out why is the world the way that it is. The third type of wisdom is what I think today we might call science and technology. But that makes it far too modern. Perhaps we should say the skill in making and producing things, in creating things, in growing things. It is this third type that Job speaks about at some length in this particular chapter. You will note, by the way, in the three types of wisdom, that they all demonstrate an ability to cope. The proverbial wisdom helps us to cope with the ordinary uh, demands of everyday life. That is, when you're faced with a dilemma, what is the right thing to do? One can go to one's parents or grandparents or someone in the community who has lived longer than us or to whom the wisdom has been passed down and they can say to us, this is what you should do. It helps us to make the decisions. The intellectual odyssey helps us to cope with knowing and how it is we are to govern, for example, and to make decisions and how we are to rule. The third type of wisdom that Job speaks of is how do we cope with the raw materials of life? And it is, I think, in many ways, an intriguing chapter. But one thing should be clear to us as we begin, that in each type of wisdom, true knowledge or true wisdom depends on obedience to God, not on natural or theoretical knowledge. And I hope by the time we are done, this will become clear. In this chapter, Job's hymn to wisdom consists of three parts. There are three stanzas. I'm sorry, it consists of more than that. There are three stanzas. There are two refrains or two sort of choruses. And then a finale uh, we find in verse number uh, 28. But stanza one, we will begin with, is verses 1 through 11. We might call it human ingenuity or the genius of man. Follow along if you would as I read. There is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth and copper is smelted from ore. Man puts an end to the darkness. He searches the farthest recesses for ore in the blackest darkness. Far from where people dwell, he cuts a shaft in places forgotten by the foot of man. Far from men, he dangles and sways. The earth from which food comes is transformed below as by fire. Sapphires come from its rocks and its dust contains nuggets of gold. No bird of prey knows that hidden path. No falcon's eye has seen it. Proud beasts do not set foot on it, and no lion prowls there. Man's hand assaults the flinty rock and lays bare the roots of the mountains. He tunnels through the rock. His eyes see all its treasures. He searches the sources of the rivers and brings hidden things to light. It is, I think, a rather dramatic description of the ingenuity of humanity in one specific endeavor 
that is, in terms of mining. Mining precious stones, gold or silver or iron, copper from the ground. Now, as we look at this section, it might, uh, on the face of it, present certain problems. The first would probably be, isn't it, isn't it rather presumptuous to praise human beings? Shouldn't we be praising God and not men? We'll get to that in a minute. I think for our purposes, the question that scholars ask that we need to answer is, how does this fit in with the flow of the book? I mean, you know, it's fine that we have this break, this change of tempo, but shouldn't there be some continuity? Uh, shouldn't there be some connection? You just, just can't sort of go off in left field. There has to be some connection. But there is a very strong connection. Think a minute. What was the last thing that one of Job's friends said that was Bildad? The last statement that came from the friends. How much less man who is but a maggot, a son of man who is only a worm. Not a very high view of man. And Job responds, first of all, in chapter 26, speaking of God's greatness, that it goes beyond what we can comprehend, that what we see is but the fringe, what we hear is but a whisper. In chapter 27, he speaks from his own integrity. But here, in response to someone who would say, well, human beings are just maggots, they're just worms. Job, on the other hand, exalts man and says, you're wrong, Bildad. People are quite amazing. Human beings are made in the image of God, and they are really quite magnificent. Listen, if you would, as, and follow through in verses 3 through 11. Um, Job describes the wonder of man in terms of his abilities. In verse 3, the intellect, that he puts an end to darkness. In verse 3, again, his persistence, uh, that he searches to the farthest reaches. When people are digging for gold or silver, the darkness doesn't stop them. They figure out how to work in the mine. And they're not stopped. They keep going and going. The curiosity, the shaft is far from where people live. They don't just dig a mine where they live. They're willing to go out and look for it. They have vision. And verse number seven, I think, is intriguing here that that no bird and, and eagles and falcons have great vision, but they don't see gold or silver in the ground. Man somehow has the ingenuity to know where to find it and where to look for it. Human beings have the courage to go in there and get it. Lions don't go in mine shafts. They don't go looking for gold or silver or sapphires. Only human beings have this courage. And they have the, the industriousness, the hardworking capability in verses 9 through 10, assaulting the flinty rock and tunneling through the rock. In verse number 10, he has discernment. He perceives what is precious. He sees all the treasures. He knows what is good and what is not good. Creativity. In verse number 10, he tunnels through the rock. Sometimes you have to build a tunnel. You have to dig a, a tunnel. And insight. In verse number 11, he brings the hidden things to light. The products of man's genius, I think, are evident in terms of mining, in terms of tool making, earth moving, and so much more. Now, just let me stop a minute and say that there is a tendency, I think, in our time to view human ingenuity 
as existing in our time uh, to a greater extent than it ever has. That, that people are just so much, they know so much more than they've known, known in previous generations. I think this is really arrogant because it fails on a number of levels. First of all, to acknowledge that what we know today is built on what people learned previous to us. We didn't sort of just sprout out on our own. We've built on knowledge that was gained before us. Secondly, that ingenuity is not always manifested in the same way. It's not always manifested in the same way. In fact, um, there's a book in which the author, uh, The Lever of, of Riches, in which the author talks about classical civilizations versus non-classical, if you wish. And, and this person notes that in the Roman and Greek cultures, in terms of technology, they weren't that great, but they produced great art. Then we come to the medieval period, which oftentimes is known in textbooks as the Dark Ages, which was a time of explosion in terms of technology. The zipper, for example, was invented during the Dark Ages. Uh, they were able to use water power to saw logs. They had sawmills. And, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And yet, in terms of culture, they did not produce what we find in the classical civilizations. And, and so we need to be careful that when we speak of ingenuity, we don't sort of limit ourselves to technology and say, well, this this. Uh, expresses ingenuity and perhaps art or music does not. I think it's also arrogant for the third reason. We don't know all that has gone on before us. And even the things that we do know about, we don't have explanations for. Uh, one author has noted that when you look at the technologies that are available today, it really corresponds to Job's list. If you think of worldwide communications, twice this week my sister called me from the Philippines on her cell phone. And one time she was out in Iba Zambales, which is sort of out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, it's, it's really quite amazing. Cancer research, laser technology, the microchip, which keeps getting some more and more micro, if you wish. Organ transplants. Guy and I were able to visit her brother-in-law who had a liver transplant dead. Thirty years ago, who could have imagined such a thing? Oceanography, as people ex explored the depths of the oceans, space exploration. We could go on and on with the list. But it is not our age alone which possesses ingenuity. I was mentioning in Sunday school, I finished one book and then started a second one, that prove, at least to my satisfaction, that human beings have been traveling across the planet uh, from Asia, for example, to North America, from Africa to South America, for example. Um, some have even circumnavigated the globe, not hundreds of years ago, but thousands of years ago. 2,000 years before Christ, people were traveling from the continents. But we're only now finding the evidence of it. Um, Job's point is this, and I think we need to embrace it. What a marvelous creature is a human being. And how ingenious are human beings in their capacity to do things. But this brings up a question. 
And we come to the first refrain. And if you look at verse number 12, here is the question. But where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? How do people know how to do these things? Where did they get that wisdom and that understanding? You know, I am not so amazed by modern medicine, even though it is really quite remarkable. I think I'm more amazed by pre-modern medicine and ancient medicine, where people could heal with roots and with the leaves of certain plants. And I always wonder, how did they know? How did they know that that root cured that particular problem? I hope they didn't use the scientific method, because if they did, a bunch of people might have died before they stumbled on the right route. Somehow, intuitively, people knew this is what will take care of this particular problem. In the modern age, we have the scientific method, trial and error. If this doesn't work, we'll try something else. Uh, I don't think people had that luxury in the past. How is it that people know what they know? This brings us to the second stanza. It is a confession that wisdom is not found in the ingenuity of man. And, and really not in any other aspect of creation as well. Look, if you would, beginning in verse number 13. Man does not comprehend its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me. The sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be bought with the finest gold nor can its price be weighed in silver. It cannot be bought with the gold of Ophir, with precious onyx or sapphires. Neither gold nor crystal can compare with it, nor can it be had for jewels of gold. Coral and jasper are not worthy of mention. The price of wisdom is beyond rubies. The topaz of Cush cannot compare with it. It cannot be bought with pure gold. One would think that for all the ingenuity of human beings, that we would know its value, we would comprehend the value of wisdom, and secondly, we would know where to find it. Sadly, for all our ingenuity, this is not the case. I think there is an unspoken assumption that we simply have the ability, that we don't sit down and analyze it. We just, we just simply know how to do it. And, yeah, we just can. And the value of it, where it came from, is something that I think we fail to comprehend. And so what we do instead I think of appreciating its true source is we begin to view it as a commodity. We fail to realize its true value, that it is priceless. It cannot be purchased. And he mentions here all the things for gold and silver, uh, onyx, coral, jasper. You can get all these things and you can't buy wisdom. Perhaps to bring it more into our world, you can't buy talent. Either you've got it or you don't. Either you have this ability or you don't. You can be trained. But, you know, some people just have incredible abilities. Uh, everybody has abilities, but 
some people have it where it really jumps out at you and that can't be bought. It can't be bought. I think my mother tried to buy musical talent for me with eight years of piano lessons and it didn't work. Okay, uh, Some people have it, some people don't. But there is a tendency when we see something valuable to think that it has a price, that it can be purchased. That is never more true than it is in our particular age. In a lecture that I give in my classes on shifts in 19th century, uh, in the West in the 19th century, which gives rise to the age of imperialism, I conclude with what has been called the new trinity of the secular West. Science, which will allow us to know everything. Technology, which will allow us to do anything. And the market, which will allow us to buy anything. And I think Job would feel his hymn to wisdom would fit very much in our time where science says we know or we can know everything and the market says we can buy anything. And Job would say, you know what? For all your ingenuity, you don't know where to find wisdom. And for all your wealth, you can't buy it. And so again, the question comes up. And here we come to the second refrain in verse number 20. Where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? Job concludes in this final section that wisdom belongs to God alone and it comes from Him. Follow along if you would as I read in, beginning in verse 21. It, that is wisdom, understanding, is hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds of the air. Destruction and death say only a rumor of it has reached our ears. God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where it dwells. For he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he established the force of the wind and measured out the waters, when he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, then he looked at wisdom and appraised it. He confirmed it and tested it. As he did in the second stanza, Job is on a search for wisdom and, and wondering where can it be found. He acknowledges that it is hidden from the eyes of every living thing, even from the birds in the air who, who might be able to see things. Eagles are said to have great vision. Even they don't know where it can be found. And then he goes beyond us. And, and Dan read a similar phrase. I don't know if you noticed in Proverbs today, uh, death and destruction. These are a pair that we find in wisdom literature. Death in Hebrew, Sheol, uh, destruction, Abaddon, which oftentimes refers uh, to hell or to a dark place, not hell in the New Testament sense. But the land of shadows, the place beyond us, the place of great darkness, even beyond what we are capable of grasping, these places do not know where wisdom is. And you should realize, and I think Job does, and he wants us to, that if you exhaust the witness of earthly and unearthly, the earthly realm, if you wish, and the unearthly realm, you must come to the conclusion, if they don't know where wisdom is, that wisdom must be a transcendent quality. 
something that transcends us as human beings. And so Job turns to the one transcendent being in all reality, and that is God. It is God who alone knows and understands where wisdom comes from, where it can be found, where it dwells. And the fact that God knows about wisdom is seen in his creation and how he structured the world and how he sustains the world. It's seen in four mysterious forces of nature. Perhaps they are not so mysterious to scientific people today. The wind, the rains, I'm sorry, the waters, the rain and the thunderstorm. And again, we must be aware that we have scientific explanations for all of these things. For example, wind is results when cold air and warm air come into contact. But sometimes the air is cool and refreshing. It refreshes us on the earth and other times it blows violently and then inflicts great destruction. The waters here of the sea, the vast, seemingly measureless waters of the oceans, have been measured precisely by God. God knows precisely how much water is in the ocean. It is under his control. The rains, and here we are told that God not only established them, but that he made a decree. He made a law. This is how they are going to work. This is how they will do things. And the thunderstorm, an interesting phrase, he makes a path for the thunderstorm, which we don't always know. We don't know which way thunderstorms will go. I mean, I think of most places in the United States, we have pretty much the blandest weather in the country. And yet I'm amazed how often the weather forecasts are wrong. That they try to predict and say it's going to go this way and then instead it goes another way. But God is the one who makes a path for it. All of these forces of nature which can destroy us, these things are under God's control. Verse number 27, I think, is critical and is key here. Job asserts that from the beginning, God determined wisdom's essence. God is the one who created wisdom. We're told in Proverbs that knowing uh, the value of wisdom, he made wisdom his counselor. Which means that God used wisdom in creating the world. He uses wisdom in governing the world even today. But above all, this is important, God created wisdom. Okay. God, wisdom does not transcend God. God is the first cause. He transcends all things. And within this reality, God has created wisdom to govern the planet and to govern our lives. And this is where the finale comes in. We've had three stanzas. We've had two refrains. We have a third refrain, but we'll call it a finale here. Verse number 28. Having created wisdom, and he said to man, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to shun evil is understanding. God uses wisdom within this reality to govern but also, not only the wind, the seas, the, you know, the rain, all of that, but us, the way that we are supposed to live our lives. 
We cannot discover, I think, the way to wisdom. But we can find wisdom by fearing God. We can gain understanding by shunning evil. Fear is the proper response to the presence of a holy God. Submission. I mean, to understand that the wind and the rain and the thunderstorms, these are under God's control. One should have some sense that fear is appropriate. That we would acknowledge that God is great, that we are really finite and limited. And shunning evil is the only appropriate response if we want to please him. And think, if God created the world and he still controls the world and all the things that go on, and he says to us, this is what I want you to do, and these are the things I want you to avoid, it would make sense that we would follow God, we would humble ourselves before him, and we would avoid the things that he tells us to avoid. And if we do that, we gain wisdom. We gain understanding. And this means, if we think about it, that wisdom is a gift from God. He alone can enable us to submit ourselves. It's not as though we have the capacity to be humble. It is not in our nature to submit. Certainly not to God. And He alone can give us the desire of the heart to want to please Him. So Job concludes at this, this hymn to wisdom that the primary means of growing in wisdom and understanding is not by investigation. It is by obedience to God. Which now gives us a biblical definition of wisdom. Wisdom is a way of living before God. We can either live wisely before God or we can live foolishly. One author who is well known for his work on the wisdom literature says, the thesis that all human knowledge comes back to the question about commitment to God is a statement of penetrating discernment. One becomes competent and expert as far as the orders in life are concerned only if one begins from the knowledge of God. I think this chapter is appropriate in the midst of Job because it sort of it puts a roadblock in the way for all the speculation that's been going on for all these chapters. I think Job wants to warn his friends that theoretical or abstract or even theological discussions will not get the answer. They will not be sufficient. The way out of this is not to begin here and work your way up to God. Rather, it is to begin with God and to understand that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and understanding and work your way down. But this brings up a problem or a question that we must answer. Is the Bible suggesting, is Job suggesting or anyone else, that only those who fear God will have great abilities 
or great knowledge, skills, talents, creativity. And I think common sense gives us the answer. Of course not. No. God is the one who distributes abilities. God is the one who gives knowledge and he gives it as he sees fit. And he doesn't give it merely to those who will be his people, but to all humanity. But I would argue that it is only those who have the fear of the Lord who will understand and appreciate the context of their abilities. Why do I have this knowledge? Why do I have this ability? Why do I have this skill, this gift, this talent? Those who fear God will realize this comes from God. It is not to be used for evil. We are to shun evil. It is to be used for good. It comes from God. And I believe that at the final judgment, among the questions that God will ask to those who perhaps had great talents or great skills, where did you think your talents came from? Did you not consider that they were gifts? And if you did think they were gifts, why did you never look for the giver? Why did you just sit there content to play with the gift and use it for yourself and never stop to think, who gave this to me? Why am I able to do this? Why did you never look for me? We must remember that Job is in the Old Testament. It is before the coming of Christ. It is with the coming of Christ that the light is turned on even brighter, if you wish. I want to close by reading a passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in which Paul talks about the fact that the gospel seems foolish to the world. And remember, we're talking about wisdom, a hymn to wisdom. And what do you do when the message seems foolish to people who, at least by human standards, are seen as being wise? This is a fascinating passage, and I won't read it all. I, I just want to read one verse, and I would encourage you, if you get a chance, to read this this afternoon in the context of the Sermon on Wisdom. But, but listen to what Paul says in verse number 30. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Christ is our wisdom. And to know Christ, I think, is to understand, oh, this is why I can do this. And this is the purpose to which I should use my abilities. Human beings are, if we would Put aside false humility. Human beings are amazing creatures. They really are. Why not? We are made in the image of the Creator. But the abilities we have come from the Creator. It is in part the connection we have with the Creator. And if we do not fear Him, then we will not understand 
We will not be wise about what we have. We may be brilliant, but we will not live as wise people. Let's pray together. Our Father, it really is quite remarkable the abilities that people have. How that they, if stopped in one place, go in a different direction. That if they cannot hear, uh, they learn to communicate another way. They cannot speak, they commute another way. Uh, people seem so resilient. And it is amazing, it is wonderful, but it comes from you. And it is wisdom and understanding to know this and to fear you, to submit to you, and to obey you. Forgive us for those times in which we forget that what we are able to do, that ability comes from you. Forgive us when we use our abilities for evil. Forgive us when we use them for ourselves and not your glory. And by your grace, may we humble ourselves, obey you and avoid what is evil, and so gain wisdom and understanding. I, I think when we get to heaven, we will be amazed that we will, as we will look back on the history of humanity and be amazed at the things that humankind has accomplished. But it is all because of the gifts you have given us. And there on the final judgment, those who failed to recognize the source of their gifts will be cast out. I ask that by your spirit we would meditate on these things and think them through in the coming days. I thank you for the chance to meet together, the time to worship. May your grace and your spirit go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You stand please as we sing the doxology together. benediction, I think appropriately, is from Paul's doxology in Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, 
how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen.